Welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast. In this podcast, we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we do tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors too. Hello podcast listeners, I'm Alan Collins and I'm joined today by my colleague Sam Barker. Hello. And today we are going to be discussing how paedophiles manipulate those around them to sexually abuse. In a recent podcast we discussed the Jeffrey Epstein case and in particular how in our experience of representing survivors we find time and time again how child sex abusers groom not just their victims but those around them. It has been suggested in the media very recently that Prince Andrew was used by Epstein as bait. We have no knowledge either way, of course, as to whether this is right or wrong. That that allegation about bait, now that was in relation to Prince Andrew being on a trip that this person was kind of being lured to come to. So, um, you know, the draw of Prince Andrew being there was a reason to come. Is that is that what was the allegation? That's what's being suggested in the media reports. And it's an interesting word, bait. You know, it smacks of grooming and manipulation. And that's why we thought we would discuss this again. Okay, we've discussed the Epstein case in a bit of detail quite recently, but I think this suggestion is an ongoing saga, isn't it? And this suggestion that the prince was used as bait is is an interesting one. As I said, you know, we we don't know who's right, who's wrong, who's done what to who and all the rest of it. It's not our place to judge, so to speak. Um, All we can do is draw on our own experience and look at the various issues that the case has thrown up and how the media are reporting it, because it is interesting, particularly when you're working with survivors and trying to assist and to advise them and and represent them. Yeah, absolutely. And and this case also kind of really highlights the issue of grooming and how it's used in these kind of contexts with, you know, this significant imbalance of power between Epstein and the people he was, he, he allegedly abused. Yeah. And we can see how grooming comes, goes through that whole, uh, you know, relationship and process. Yeah. Well, I would say that grooming is a common currency when it comes to child sexual abuse, because to abuse the child, the abuser will have perhaps built up trust will have developed a so-called relationship with the child and maybe beyond the child with the child's family the parents gain the trust of the parents Mm -hmm. and so on in order to access the child and it's not just about accessing the child it's also about controlling the situation to prevent the child from speaking out to the parents because the child will be only too conscious but the abuser may well be friends with the parents or other members of the family and so on. That's all part of the manipulation. And I think we have to always be conscious of that because paedophile sex offenders are often exerting considerable power, exercising control over not just the victim, but also those in the victim's immediate surroundings. Well, you know, not a very nice question, I guess, to ask you, but how many cases... It would be rare for you to have a case, would it not, where there's just been a brazen one-off kind of sexual assault in a, in the street or something. It's usually in this kind of context where there is 
a, re- a pre-existing relationship, power, trust, control, and some element of grooming of both the child and the people around them. Yes, it, there's every case is different and degrees of grooming vary enormously. So sometimes, to put it crudely, you can have one-off situations, but even then the child, the young person, will usually know the abuser, teacher, priest, whatever. Um, And then you've got other cases where you've got grooming and abuse over a long period of time. Indeed, in some of the cases that you're working on, Sam, you've got serious sexual abuse taking place over years. That's right. You know, they're not just one-off occasions. And, of course, with the ongoing sexual abuse, you've got ongoing grooming and manipulation and control being exercised over that that young person yeah. and if and probably many cases their immediate family as well yeah and tragically on, on many occasions the circumstances are such that the person doesn't know what's happened to them is in fact abusive or indeed illegal for a long time because of how kind of all-encompassing the grooming has been and from the position which it started which in a lot of cases from early childhood and as that person grows up and that kind of infuses the grooming throughout their whole life and makes it very difficult to know what's right and what's wrong that's right it corrupts the boundaries it corrupts trust and you know many survivors have difficulty in adult relationships because of trust issues because you know the boundaries were busted by the abuser when they were a child when they were a young person mm. and that manipulation of course can continue even after the abuse has ended you know the abuser um, may still be in the orbit of the victim particularly uh, where there's a criminal case involving both and then a civil case you know it's just but by, by virtue of how these things roll out they're yeah they're around the, each other and the abuser often has you know tragically sadly great insights into their victim's psyche so that they know for example how to play on the victim's fears for example you know maybe the abuse comes to light they're arrested taken to the police station they can deny matters um, they can make counter allegations in order to try and get inside the survivor's mind and play mind games with them yeah make them Uh, fearful of what's to come in the criminal process as well which is i think you know a a real problem because when people think they have to face someone in court in cross-examination and you know have to come into court and face them on a daily basis for a criminal trial that can be something that'd be really affecting yes it's sort of online ongoing i suppose ongoing manipulation from far away you know they're still able to do that because through the abuse they've been able to get inside that victim's mind you know they're Mm. there you know it's like a a nasty little seed that's been planted um inside the brain so to speak and and it's there just waiting for that opportunity to come back to life so to speak or to spring into life and to you know cause yet more misery and harm and so on and and that goes kind of leads us quite well into what we're, we're also going to talk about today, which is the Harvey Weinstein case, and also just generally settlement of these kind of cases, uh, which involves an offer from, you know, the, the abuser or indeed the, the, the organisation that's responsible for the abuser and kind of how uh, understandably a survivor could have 
implicit distrust in how that offer's put and, and whether and it, it's yeah, and what further it manipulation. Yeah. yeah. So the Weinstein case is interesting because, you know, the recent media reports that there is going to be an out-of-court settlement or the possibility of an out-of-court se- settlement has generated allegations that um, the victims are being manipulated again. When you first think about it, you think, well, hang on, how, how can that be? You know, surely that's good news. You know, if there's a possibility of an out-of-court settlement, mm. you think, well, yeah, that's a, you know, that's a step in the right direction. That's good news. And maybe it is. But it's interesting that there's this comment has been made, well, it's manipulation again. And of course, we know from our own cases that bringing a civil case actually, for many a survivor, empowers them because they're in control. It's them bringing their own case against the abuser or against those responsible for the abuser. And many say it's a cathartic experience. But for some, even if they ex- you know, have those feelings, they feel that when the abuser makes some kind of offer, mm. they understandably feel as though they're being controlled again or there's an attempt to control them. And I think we recognise as lawyers that we have to be conscious of that very understandable um, feeling on the part of some survivors yeah and with this with this Weinstein case it's actually uh, I would say entirely understandable from um, some of the survivors point of view to question you know how this offer is being made because so many of the previous settlement agreements from years ago included gagging clauses to make sure nobody could speak out again about what happened to them involving Weinstein and so you know when so many of these cases arise out of that kind of conduct already, it's understandable that people have suspicions about this settlement agreement. Indeed, you know, and there's now a question about whether agreements that contain clauses that attempt to gag or suppress are actually valid. In my experience, it's very unusual to have agreements and it's even more unusual to have agreements that contain some kind of gagging clause we do come across them but they're quite um in in my experience quite rare and i personally question their value because you can't use a sort of confidentiality agreement to stymie the criminal process so i had an experience some years ago where there was a confidentiality agreement between defendants my clients weren't involved um they'd won their case and and so on they were okay it didn't involve us directly but there there was a, an agreement a confidentiality agreement between defendants and then later on there was a, a criminal case and the agreement between the defendants could not be mentioned in the courtroom in front of the jury mm. and that you know i think everyone thought was somewhat questionable because the jury were being deprived potentially of a very important piece of information, a very important piece of evidence. But the counter-argument was, well, if they knew about it, maybe it prejudiced the defendants in their eyes. So you can see both sides of the arguments. But yeah. but my own view is is that it was getting in the way of the criminal process. Yeah. If, it, if that kind of thing happens, I think that's quite unacceptable. But also like from, from our client's point of view and indeed from survivor's point of view, a confidentiality agreement as to what occurred, you know, it's something we rarely agree to. And I think it can be really harmful. I think it, it is probably now legally dubious to have survivors sign agreements 
but prevent them talking about their their case, their allegations. That's quite separate from being stopped from telling the world that they have received some compensation. Yeah. Those are probably two completely different things. Yeah. And it, in my opinion, an agreement that the survivor cannot go shouting from the rooftops that they've received X is one thing and probably valid. If, on the other hand, the agreement says, actually, you can't say anything, that, I think, would probably be legally unenforceable in many cases because it's counter to public justice, you know, the administration of justice. Yeah, Yeah. it could lead to further harm. If you have a situation like, well, Harvey Weinstein is the perfect example. You know, this person is somebody who allegedly has, has been abusing his position of power for years to sexually abuse or assault women. And through these confidentiality agreements years ago, it, it was something that was probably only known between a very small group of people and therefore the threat that he posed wasn't widely known and that could have led to further harm. Indeed. And there's another side to all of this, of course, is that the media exposure about the settlement or proposed settlement of course, um, creates its own issues in itself because if there was now new confidentiality agreements, they probably be, wouldn't be worth the paper they're written on because of all the publicity that there's been in the in the press over recent days about all of this. So it's, it'd be like trying to shut the stable door after the horse has bolted. Mm, absolutely, mm. I, yeah. Well, it's 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 all you know interesting to talk about with this Harvey Weinstein matter and indeed the settlement, but. We do. There is a criminal trial coming up, I think, in January. So we can speak about Harvey Weinstein with a bit more certainty as to what the, the outcome is in the criminal courts in due course. I'm sure it will be a subject and a case that we'll return to in a future podcast. Indeed. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Thank, thank you, you, listeners. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you would like to speak to Alan or I about something you have heard this week, or even if you would like to suggest a topic for a future episode, please do get in touch at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk. 